Welcome to Fashion Forum, a podcast brought to you by the British Fashion Council. I'm Caroline Rush, Chief Executive. Today we bring you a series of conversations highlighting the relationship between the creative industries, celebrating not only fashion designers, but also the broader creative community, all of whom play a vital role in our industry's culture and reputation, promoting British creativity on a global scale. Hello and welcome to the Fashion Forum podcast produced by the British Fashion Council. I'm Ellie Pithers, journalist and contributing editor at British Vogue, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Gabriella Hurst, the Uruguayan-born, New York-based designer. Gabriella grew up off-grid on a ranch in Uruguay, which has been in her family for six generations, surrounded by horses, cattle and sheep. She studied communications in Uruguay, spent some time in Paris and then studied acting in New York. She launched her eponymous label in 2015 and has become a pioneer of sustainable luxury. Indeed, she was honoured at the Fashion Awards 2020 for her contributions towards achieving a circular fashion industry. And in December last year, she was announced as the new creative director at Chloe in Paris. Gabby, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. I should say we're recording in different cities. I'm in London at the moment. And where are you, Gabby? Are you in New York? I'm in New York. I'm in New York. Yeah, good. On, on, in Chelsea. Oh, great. How, how's the homeschooling going? We have a hybrid here. Okay. So they go a few days uh, to school and another few days at home, Zoom schooling. Okay. That's good. A nice and easy balance. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anything is easy these days, but you know. <laughs> You're getting there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, we're going to be talking today about sustainable luxury, something that you've uh, placed at the heart of your practice as a designer. Can you, let's start by telling us a little bit about your childhood, growing up on a ranch in Uruguay, which has been on your, in your family for 170 years. How, how did that shape your views on sustainability and also perhaps instill in you a kind of practical streak as well yeah it's, it's, it's exactly it is it's it's amazing the the values that i i grew up and and i also grew up pre-globalization mm-hmm. and in a very remote place in the world uh two hours and a half away uh from the closest uh, urban center and so and my family has been there for 170 years in that area mm-hmm. and uh, in the same place where my mom is now. And we just grew up with things that were well made, but they were well made from a utilitarian perspective mm-hmm. in order to last. Yeah. And we've always been sustainable, but not from a conscious way. It was just also a utilitarian way. We just, my mom still lives off the grid. So when solar panels started appearing in the market, we had solar panels. And before that, we had wind electricity. We still have a windmill. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's always been having few things that last and pass the test of time and creating product that, the bloodlines of our animals are the same bloodlines of the family, you know? So, you know, the longevity of things and how long it takes to do something 
well and I think my mm-hmm. my getting great merino and great wool and, and what that takes and so I think my my um, that bring me really grounded me on the facts of what's really important and what's not right mm-hmm. and so I grew up very very um, uh, with sparse things but well made and substance of quality which that ingrains on on an ability that I think is my only one ability I have is to to I can identify quality very quickly. Yeah, yeah. So that has been ingrained in me, and the sustainable practice is just a way of living. And then I came to live in the U.S. 20 years ago, which is a full-on different contrast, right? It was like the I had a contemporary brand before having GH, mm-hmm. which was in the boom of like the uh, consumption, the Zara's and the H and M's and and it was very apparent very soon that that was going to not be a, a, um, a long-term view. And it was really when I actually inherit my dad's ranch that I started to really having that kind of questioning myself if what I was doing in New York was the, was the right thing to do. Yeah. And where, I mean, in amongst all of the horse riding and caring for animals, where did you get your love of fashion? I know your mum was yeah. influential yeah. in that. Yeah. Well, that's my mum. We've, we've talked a lot about this because till very recently, she was not sure what I was doing for a living. She was <laughs> like, so only when I started to appear on the national news, you know, where <laughs> things were like, oh, this is actually a job. Um, so it's. <laughs> So we've talked about this because she's been such a great influence on me and mm-hmm. as Lady Diana was as well, because I did go to a British school, um, <laughs> she, she used to have, um, we used to have a family seamstress that all the women in the family used to have their clothes made. So my mom basically was making her clothes, she was designing her clothes um, and it wasn't that you would get new clothes every year either it was in specific periods that you would have quite a few pieces made um with european fabric so she got to design so the few pieces of known gaucho gear that she would have right because when you work in the countryside and people that from the rural understand this you're like you're very rough right mm-hmm. but when it's time to clean up they clean up very nicely <laughs> like you dress up in a very nice way, right? Yeah. So yeah. It's, a, it's a moment of pride and you wash up and you clean up and, and people from, from the country know about, about this. And, and it really was those moments where she had her outfits that she had to go to the rural exhibition or the expo for the best, you know, um, uh, sheep or the best horse, you know, you have to like dress up and her outfits were always so beautiful put up. So in that way, she influenced me because it was basically couture-made pieces because they were made to measure to her body with beautiful fabrics. And so that's where I had a lot of this love for fashion, but also I would say my imagination Mm -hmm. because there was no TV, it was only radio. And so I spent a lot of time riding horses and thinking I was riding horses in these really glowy, blowy dresses, not really wearing the gaucho outfit I was wearing. So I think a lot of it having to do with imagination being my toy. Yeah. Now, and tell us a little bit, you mentioned that you had a brand before Gabriella Hearst uh, called Candela, yeah. um, which you launched in 2004, I think. Was yeah. that a kind of prototype for your, your current brand or was it a completely different concept? 
the concept was to really, I always was attracted to timeless design because even when I look back to the Candela pieces, you can still wear it right now when you go to the beach. Anything I've, I've done has always had this sense of a temporal feeling to it. They're not very trend-based. Yeah. So in that sense, they were similar. It was a very small um, investment. We, we were three partners and each of us put $700. But <clears throat> I had to make it work or I had to go back to sell cows with my dad because he wasn't <laughs> willing to support a New York lifestyle. <laughs> and so it was the first year it was uh, maximizing my credit card debt or it had to work or I had to go back. <laughs> and so we made it work from yeah. the first year. So I was able to support ourselves in, in, uh, in support myself in New York uh, from it. So it was learning how to run a business and the entrepreneurial spirit that we very still much have at, at GH. Yeah. It's like you do five jobs and mm -hmm. that is really that the reality of it, which I also love because you, it gives you a flexibility and you move easily and fast. So I have to say those were very much um, my training years yeah. where people say, oh my God, you achieved so much success so quickly with GH. They don't see the other 10, 11 years of like failing, right? Of like <laughs> doing things, doing mistakes of like things that were like just happening, like I remember having a whole shipment of shoes that were made in China and they came, it was a monsoon season and they came all molded. And I'm telling you, because it was a private label. Oh my God. And it was just like 10,000 shoes full of mold and all coming to our offices and having to deal with these things. I think that was, um, it was a very, it was a great school mm -hmm. and it was definitely what gave me the ground to learn and to be able to, when we had GH, be an, a bit more mature and be able to say, to be no, what, when to say no to things yeah. and what, what route to take and not to be too, um, I think sometimes when success comes to, when you're too young, it may, it may uh, confuse you. Mm. I did not suffer from that. I'm a late bloomer. Yeah. So <laughs> that's really, I would say that uh, Candela was my, my base. Yeah, training ground. And, yeah. and in terms of sustainable initiatives um, that you've, you know, you've had so many milestones at, at Gabriella Hurst and in uh, one that comes to mind immediately to me was September 2019 when you held the first carbon neutral fashion show in New York. Um, and that proved really instrumental in inspiring big brands and conglomerates to make similar commitments to the environment. Where did that idea come to you initially? I, I remember yeah. when we when we talked about it at the time, you compared it to lowering your cholesterol, which I thought was a great yeah. analogy. So the idea came, you know, we never set it up to be like, we'll be the first carbon neutral show. It was never a thought through that process. It was actually during the period that we were doing the store with Norman Foster, mm. where it was about doing the lowest impact possible. Yeah. And then I started thinking, but a show, how much carbon footprint does a show cost? And nobody really had that information. And, and thinking of, we can't really lower it if we didn't know it. And, I, and I, that's why I paralleled it to my cholesterol experience where I knew my cholesterol was high, so I, we had to measure it. And in order to lower it, 
I had to do more exercise and I had to do all these different life changes in order to lower the cholesterol, which I did. Mm. So in that sense, it was about starting to collect the data. And it's very, very interesting. What, what you, are the things that put your carbon footprint up Yeah. versus... What did you think was the most surprising? Were there, were there new revelations that you were like, God, I never knew that, you know, this much seating at a show flowers. would be this amount flowers. of flowers. I never knew that um, not using cut flowers, I mean, using local, you wow, know, herbs really? or looking, yeah, yeah, there's things. Obviously, shipping the collection mm-hmm. is the number one. Uh, if you look at a fashion brand from a carbon footprint perspective, Imagine a circle and divide it in half and 25% is going to be raw materials and the other 25% is going to be transportation. Mm-hmm. So in, for a show, we were really measuring the transportation and the transportation obviously, is, it's the, it was one of the highest carbon footprint mm. um, what producers. Do you, what do you think, um, I, I know you've, you've been focusing on lots of different elements in terms of your sustainable initiatives. So, you yeah. know, in 2019, you changed all the brands packaging to biodegradable alternatives. You've changed yeah. your supply chain from air freight to shipping by boat. You've reduced the use of non-virgin materials to zero. Yeah. What are you focusing no, on? No, we're not then? at What's zero. Your... We're not at zero yet. Okay. We're, we, we have a, we're not, we're not at zero yet. And, um, in the in the shipping by boat we're still we're 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 still it's one of the biggest challenges in the supply chain to be able to ship by boat we're still not there yet but on the virgin materials we're 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 on track to our goal which would be 80 percent by the end of 2022 yeah and so in that we're we are i'm pretty confident because and they, that concept is to really move into a circular economy as soon as possible, mm-hmm. which is what we're trying to do. Yeah. So, so that's your big focus for, for this year. Are there anything, anything yeah. else you're working on that you're excited by? Well, it's always, um, it's a practice, right? And, and, and as a practice, you, you start to, to, the more you learn, the more you, you want to challenge yourself and what's the next level. And because our brand, it's, it's really rooted in these two values, which is long-term view and sustainability. If we cannot keep evolving on the sustainability, if we ever be like, are like, oh, you know, we've done enough, this is good, that's the end of this company. Um, because it's about evolving and there's always a better uh, way of doing it because you're still producing things, right? So that has an impact. Yeah. Whatever we do, even having this conversation right now, we are using carbon dioxide. We are using, because there's an energy that's being sucked, that yeah. we are, there's a, you know, so it's, it's really anything we do takes energy but how can we do it in the lowest impact possible mm-hmm. and so that is that is the mission where like highest quality lowest impact possible and for us there's always new things to improve from the biodegradable scotch tape that we're, uh, we we secure the first batch Oh, wow. It was. It was. Uh, we secured the first batch of, of uh, biodegradable uh, scotch tape to to, to you know to see tape if it works or yeah or, or even when we did our first recyclable um, hangers, cardboard hangers, they were they were um, the coat ones were breaking. Mm-hmm. Right, because they were going to hold, so we evolved them and 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 fixed them, and and this is what gets me more excited that 
Other people can go to Dito, our hang hanger makers, and order them. Mm -hmm. And we've test drive for the yeah. evolution for, for other brands. Mm -hmm. So I think this is always evolving. There's always new elements that you want to try out and see what's fixing. But the two main goals, it's lowering the carbon footprint by shipping by boat and uh, using the least possible um, a new natural resources, meaning just just stick to repurposing and recycling. Yeah. And where have been the sticking points? Particularly, I know you've been using a lot of existing materials or, you know, yeah. old fabrics that uh, you've persuaded uh, fabric mills to sell you past season, in inverted yeah. commas, fabrics. Do you get any resistance from from customers? I mean, have you ever encountered that? How do you convince people that, you know, ostensibly a kind of old season fabric should be, you know, sustainable, a luxury vision for them? I, I think that it was never, it was, it's a, it's a changing of our mindset, right? Yeah. Which it, it triggers to all different industries and all different issues, but it's just a mindset. The first time we used that stock was in 2017. Mm -hmm. And I told a journalist, the mill that had sold me the dead stock, and it was a big no-no because it was like <laughs> nobody wanted to associate luxury with a dead stock. Yeah. And because actually the word is not that sexy, right? Yeah. And so I got in a bit of trouble with that. But now it's a much more accepting thing. And this is just three, four years ago. Mm -hmm. So I think that it has been accepted very much in our industry. The fact that you can... And this is... I think the bigger mission for GH that has become so apparent, which it was a bit about breaking the context of what sustainability should look like. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I sent a piece to, to a friend and her daughter was like, are you sure this is sustainable mom? Because it looks so nice. <laughs> and so they, sometimes people have this idea of sustainability being like granola, great, gray, you know, tree hugging, mm. wearing Birkenstocks. I love hugging trees and wearing Birkenstocks, but there's luxury should be sustainable. So it's been about breaking this mindset. So from the consumer point of view, I think that they always bought our products because they were beautiful. But now they really, as it became a main conversation, mm. I think they are, a, you know, the, a customer went to our store in bought a few pieces and she took it on her own packaging, right? She didn't want any shop bag. She didn't want, she's like, Gabby would prefer it if I didn't take the, the bag. <laughs> and so, so that mentality is changing. And we also see it in customer service. Um, a lot of people are asking about our raw materials and how we're, where are we getting this, the certifications. And so that transparency is being demanded. So mm -hmm. it's, it's uh, really evolving from the, the client base to they That's want it. So That's there's no great. resistance in that part. Mm, great to hear. And if you were giving advice to a young uh, student or a young designer today who's starting out, perhaps launching their own brand, and they want to find sustainable materials or to create a kind of circular economy for yeah. their brand, where would you advise them to go? What should they read? What should they be looking at? Yeah. So I have to say something, which is, it's, it's, interesting to me. I've uh, been in different positions in, of mentoring young uh, designers mm -hmm. and I always find myself going like, wait, I am mentoring you, but you're so knowledgeable. <laughs> um, 
I think that every young designer that I've met, it's only wants to launch because this is their world, right? Mm-hmm. They only want to launch a, a, a collection that is sustainable. Yeah. When you look at all these new brands, they all have, uh, because you can't really do a company without having that mindset. We cannot afford it. We can't do it. So they all have it. And I'm so excited for the new generation that's coming out because these resources are more, much more available now. You have different places in New York, Queen, Queen of Raw, for example, that sells um, existing materials and you can purchase. There's the equivalent to them in France. There's the equivalent, I'm sure, in the UK. There is this ability to find these materials in a much easier way. Mm-hmm. And there's different organizations Like, for example, you have a sustained chain that has been launched by the UN, which is a non-for-profit where you can join as a vendor and you can join as a designer or you can join as anything and, and put your missions target to the sustainable goals of the UN. And once you are entered those goals, they also pay, uh, pair you with vendors. So there's an array of tools right now that could make the five... Six, it's going to be six years since we launched, much faster the learning curve than for us, for it was with us. So when it took us, let's say, six years, they can do it now in, in one, in, in a few months. It's mm-hmm. all there now. Yeah. So I think it's a very exciting time for, for young designers. Fantastic. Do you, how do you think the pandemic has changed the way we feel about the environment? You know, I think it, it's, it's almost a cliche to say, but I think so many of us around the world have have finally woken up to the climate crisis this year? I think the silver lining of this, um, of, of this catastrophic event is the fact that when you talk to experts, right, in, in the environmental science, it's always been, we have everything we need right now, today, to combat climate change. We have everything we need. We have everything. There is nothing we don't have. There's no new technology. We have everything. Carbon capture, we have trees. They're the best technology in the world to to process carbon dioxide. We just have to conserve, and if we are able to conserve, we solve 30% of our problems. Um, But the question has always been, can we change fast enough the way we are and behave? What we do know is that the pandemic made us change really fast our behavior. Mm -hmm. So we can change it fast enough. And this is the one hope I have for us as a species that because we are so adaptable, we're going to be able to change. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I think think everybody should watch the David Attleborough film that came Mm -hmm. out this year. Mm -hmm. I've read... Um, plenty of books on sustainability. I think if you watch this film for 90 minutes, you don't need to read any of the books I read. You have all the information there. And it's a beautiful film to watch. And I think that it it talks about all these these subjects. And I think the pandemic really has shown us we can adapt and change. And that makes me hopeful. Mm -hmm. I need to ask you about screen time because I know you have... (laughs) Famously done a number of detoxes from your iPhone in the past. Yeah. Uh, how's the screen time figures been for lockdown? Because mine has been horrendous. It's they're pretty bad. Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> I I do think that um, it really is quite dangerous uh, 
when you are, your mind attention is being sucked that way. Mm. And it makes me a bit nervous about the kids, right? They're doing, you spend all this time trying to get them out of the, of the screens and they're in the screens. Mm. But what I have, I, I try to really keep it at no more than four hours. It used to be two hours before COVID. Wow. And now it's at four hours. And then I have really bad days, like seven or eight hours that, because you're doing a lot of your work on the phone more than in a, than in a, in a desktop. But I've tried to do it and then to really have one day of the weekend to do like a, like a phone Shabbat where you're like, you know, no phone. Yeah. Yeah. And to just restore. But I did a retreat, a silent retreat in a, in 2019 and and two days into it you forget about your phone so the addiction of the dopamine that it does to your your mind actually it's it's it's, um different than a substance addiction Mm. because it really gets out pretty quickly out of your system in two days you were like don't need it that's reassuring to know (laughs) there's hope yeah it is (laughs) and also Fuck the algorithms, right? You don't want them to know <laughs> yeah. all your information. Exactly. Like, <laughs> it's like, I don't want them to be telling me what to watch and what music to listen. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. Um, but, but something that I couldn't tear my attention away from was, was the election. And in terms of politics, <laughs> for a brand, I think it really <sighs> doesn't get better than dressing Dr. Jill Biden at the inauguration. I know you've been dressing her for a while, but can you tell us a little bit about that experience you know, when did she ask you? How many fittings did you have? What, was she willing to let you kind of take the lead there? And, you know, such incredible embroideries. Tell me about the process. So, first of all, like, you know, it happened. <laughs> you know, it happened. This, this four past, this, this, it's been horrible. It's been worse than we ever imagined. And it's been only two weeks since we have the new president and it feels like a, such a relief, right? Mm. And especially when you're a, a woman and an immigrant and all these, all these things. And um, we've been dressing Dr. Biden for, for a while before even um, President Biden was a candidate uh, because she was the chairman with Save the Children. And I, we've been working with Save the Children for a long for time a long too. Time, yeah. So we had always had a friendly relationship and when the campaign started, we obviously were, were helping her with some outfits. And when, you know, before the election was done, I was already thinking in my head, it gave me hope, right? So, and the concept of the dress was really much, it was quite freedom. There was no, no, no request, but this was before the Capitol, attack on the Capitol, mm. uh, the concept was about unity. And, you know, we've done a T-shirt that was a, did very well in, in, um, uh, for them in, in uh, raising funds. And also we did the official uh, T-shirt, uh, sweatshirt for the inauguration to raise funds for the inauguration. Yeah. But it's always been the concept of unity. So the idea was to get unity and have every state and every territory embroidered. But moreover, make it in New York and moreover, making it in dead stock. Mm-hmm. So literally making the, ev- the evening event, right, done in a way that um, was sophisticated, 
but also was mindful of the environment. Mm -hmm. And after the uh, capital um, attack, it was really important for us to make that outfit and show after the images that the whole world saw, right? was to be able to show that America is also capable of sophistication and and hand and care and thoughtfulness. And mm -hmm. so she's an educator. So we wanted to give also a nod to that because that makes me very hopeful. I think a lot of the issues we have is based on education. Mm -hmm. And I know education is very much at heart. And so there was a lot of symbolism. We make sure that the Delaware flower came out of the heart. And so it was an honor and a dream for the team and they worked so hard and you know our our garment district is quite isolated right now there's not a lot of jobs and not a lot of work mm. so to see the team of people so hopeful and so full of love and passion uh, spending hours embroidering a, a flower it made you made you very happy and I'm so happy we were not sure if she was going to to wear it but at the end we knew and so it had to be all super top secret and uh, weld uh, measurements, you know, <laughs> done by distance. And uh, and it was an interesting experience, and uh, but definitely a joyful one that in a little, little, little way, we were part of such an important night. No, that's fun. It's, it looked spectacular. She looked fantastic. So I think a job very well done there. Um, one other thing that is remaining under wraps which we can't yeah. really talk about today is your new role at Chloe. Um, <laughs> but I, I want to ask you really, you know, you've spent some time in the city in Paris in your 20s. Yeah. Is it nice to be back and have a role there again? I have to say, I, I tell you, I can tell you this. It's like, what did you do for your midlife crisis? I got another job. <laughs> it's like, s screw the sports car. <laughs> Who needs that? Um, <laughs> I have find this experience I feel so blessed and so lucky as I'm learning so much and being able to evolve and falling in love with teams mm -hmm. right with teams and people at the end of the day it's all about people yeah and you know this very well it's like in any job is the work you do is the work surrounding and you never know it's like going to school for a new day are you gonna make you know are they, it's gonna all work out and to see really professional and and things that I couldn't even dream of, of uh, having a, a GH and, and to just really being able to execute. I have to do a lot of work in GH in order to be able to just design and here I'm I'm designing so I feel very very blessed and in in my heart is there's like another creative bulb that opened mm. so it was like I have my bulb for for GH and my bulb for Chloe and it's it's really it's, uh, it's not easy, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's definitely um, full of love. Wow, we can't wait to see the results. Um, oh, me too, me too. In March, first show. Uh, fi final question. <laughs> Trust me, I'm in a countdown. I'm like, I got GH on the 18th, I got the other one on the, th don't worry, I'm in a countdown. What's your, what is your goal for 2021? If you have to nail it down to one thing. If I would have to nail it down to one thing, is able to really um, be able to showcase that you can do luxury, both in GH, in the scale at GH, 
and in the scale of Chloe with a mindful impact mm -hmm. that you can weave into your into your platform the consciousness of the environment and the social consciousness of being able to to help others very a very worthy goal thank you thank you so no, much for you. your time gabby i think we're we're wrapping up there and um, thank you everyone for listening thank you so much Ila. it's always so nice to see you and such a pleasure thank you so much Fashion Forum is a co-production between the British Fashion Council and In Talks With Productions. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave a review and share it with your friends. If you'd like to find out more and join the conversation on social media, then head to londonfashionweek.co.uk or at London Fashion Week. <laughs>